when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, Democratic members of the House of Representatives staged a sit-in in the chamber to try to force House leadership to allow a vote on a pair of gun safety measures. But one proposal, the use of the so-called terrorist no-fly list as a screener for gun ownership, comes encrusted in controversy. We're joined by one of the legislators at the center of the story, Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, to talk about what they hope to achieve and where things go from here. Meanwhile, a lot of ink has been spilled about GOP nominee Donald Trump's various rancid statements. But this week, we've learned more about a larger problem, the candidate's inability to mount a professional campaign. Joining us to lend his insight into the weaknesses of Trump's campaign is veteran GOP digital strategist Patrick Ruffini. And is it possible for the Clinton campaign to become overconfident and complacent running against Trump? We'll put that question to the Center for American Progress's Daniela Leger. Next up, we return to the matter of the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Previously, we talked about how these Olympic Games were facing all sorts of storm and stress from ongoing political, social, and medical problems in Brazil. This week, we take on the Olympics as an institution and ask if this celebrated athletic event has become nothing more than an engine for income inequality. Finally, closer to home, Maine Governor Paul LePage has gotten himself into a game of chicken with the FDA over the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. LePage wants to prevent beneficiaries from being able to purchase soda and candy. The FDA is balked at carving out an exception for Maine. Now, LePage is threatening to stop administering the program in his state altogether, putting tens of thousands of SNAP recipients at risk of losing their primary source of food. We'll break down the latest in a long line of food stamp catfights. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Travis Waldron. Here's what happened first. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly digest of stuff that happened in politics here in America and sometimes abroad. We have a really great show this week, and we're going to get started right off the top. Joining me here, Arthur Delaney. Hi. Uh, as many of you know, in the House of Representatives this week, Democrats staged a sit-in urging their Republican colleagues to allow votes on various gun safety measures. Joining us today, right off the bat, is one of the congressmen who is at the center of this activity. He is from Texas, Congressman Beto O'Rourke. Congressman O'Rourke, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I'm glad you were able to come on the show. I know that it's been uh, just a, a, a long, long, long day and night. I want to just start, what did you guys want to achieve? by staging the sit-in? I don't know. It, it's, it's interesting because there, there seemed to be very little central planning in the event um, beyond a small group of members, John Lewis, uh, you know, central to that group. Um, and, you know, some people thought it was just going to be a, an hour-long action at lunch uh, to make a scene and, and uh, you know, make a point. Uh, others uh, were in it for the long haul. I know that Catherine Clark of Massachusetts brought a suitcase with her to work uh, because she felt like she might be staying overnight. Uh, but the the goal, legislatively at least, was to uh, somehow bring about a vote on some very common sense and, for the most part, bipartisan-supported gun legislation. Um uh, and beyond that, I, I don't know that there was a, a, a great game plan, but that ended up in some ways being the genius of the deal because it, it really developed organically and uh, many different people took leadership roles in, in different parts of the 27 hour or however long it, it, it lasted uh, sit-in and left feeling like something had fundamentally changed in Congress and even in America, when it comes to this issue, uh, 
And that's not just me saying it, a guy who's only been in Congress for three and a half years. That's John Conyers, who's been here longer than anyone who's currently serving. Jim Clyburn, uh, who's been here for a very long time and has uh, an impressive standing amongst his colleagues. Each of those two men, these two historic figures, said that the actions of yesterday, last night, and this morning, and this afternoon uh, were the most important ones that they had been a part of in their entire time in Congress. Now, Congressman O'Rourke, ostensibly this was to to uh, rally support for gun legislation, but there no vote resulted, and Congress, the House, is uh, adjourned for its July 5th recess. So how, how describe how this has uh, been beneficial for the cause of gun control. I probably couldn't do a, a better job than John Lewis, who said this morning, we have just crossed a bridge, but there will be many more bridges for us to cross. There will be many more bridges for us to build. And because of his role in the civil rights movement, uh, a movement that took many different separate actions and many tens and hundreds of thousands of people coming together, sometimes at one event, sometimes separately throughout the country, to get the change that people were seeking. I think that comparison is very fitting. We're, we're, we didn't get a vote uh, last night or today, and the Republicans uh, adjourned two days early and uh, crammed all the legislative business into a 3 a.m. maneuver and left town. But as I said earlier, I think something has changed in our expectations of ourselves as members of Congress, and we've also set a much higher expectation in the public. There were, uh, in the last live stream Facebook feed that I was sending out, about 2.3 million people uh, saw that. And that's not including the C-SPAN rebroadcast or the MSNBC rebroadcast or the Good Morning America rebroadcast. But more important than me transmitting out was that at one peak period, there were about 10,000 messages coming in an hour of people saying, stay the course, uh, fight for what's right. I want to see you guys there all night, all morning, as long as it takes to get this thing done. There's very real pressure now built up and an expectation that um, we're going to get something done. And not just on us, it's going to be on Republican members, too. And they're going to have to respond to that. Well, now, just talking about some of the specifics to the legislation, I know that one of the things that you were asking to get a vote on was to get an expanded background check uh, program installed. This is something that we go back to the Manchin-Toomey bill that failed. Uh, similar, it was a sort of similar request. Um, but you guys also put terrorism kind of front and center in this in this debate. I definitely think that it's a compelling thing to note that ISIS has kind of cracked the code on how to terrorize us. They don't have to plan huge spectacles. They don't have to spend a lot of money. They just have to come here and take the weapons we freely give them and use them. But you guys have made the terrorist no-fly list a sort of central part of this argument. And one of the things that I think kind of bothers me about this is that the terrorist no-fly list is kind of garbage. It's got, it's, it's, it's massive. It's unaccountable. It's not transparent. There are people on it who don't belong on it. Uh, and it's very difficult when you find yourself on this list wrongly to get yourself off of it. Why use the terror no-fly list as a screener for, for gun ownership when it's so inherently flawed and relatively anti-democratic and frankly, little illiberal as well. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it's inherently flawed. I think there are legitimate due process concerns that you've raised, and, and others have raised. And I actually think there are some Republicans who uh, are willing to work on this if some of those due process concerns can be addressed. But I think at perhaps a higher level, uh, it it calls attention to how absurd our gun laws are, that you would have uh, a list of people that this country feels are too dangerous to board a plane because, you know, uh, the implication being they may blow themselves up on that plane and kill the people there, but they're not too dangerous to own a killing machine that can wipe a bunch of people out in a school or a nightclub or a park or, you know, wherever they happen to be. And it's, it's the kind of absurdity that we see in 
a, an appropriations rider that doesn't allow the Centers for Disease Control to study gun violence so that members of Congress can have the information to make the best informed decisions. You're talking about the Dickey Amendment. Yes. Uh, there's the CDC, there's the, uh, the no-fly, no-buy, there's the uh, fact that not all loopholes are closed, and, and I guess in, in a simple way that I can understand it, that uh, you know every gun purchase that every American makes is somehow screened to ensure that guns are not getting into the wrong hands. And then there's the uh, assault weapons, uh, the ability for Americans to buy uh, assault weapons uh, that I think on its face is just ridiculous. There, there's no practical need other than the ability to, you know, be able to kill people. Well, I know, I know that Orlando is fresh in everyone's mind, and I know that that uh, there was a sort of susan of uh, Islamic extremism involved in that. But many of the mass shootings that that we've seen in this country really don't intersect with ISIS, with Al Qaeda, with uh, lone wolf terrorists in the in, in in the traditional sense. They just seem to be spontaneous acts. Uh, the Dylan Roof wasn't on the no-fly list. The guy who shut up the theater in Aurora wasn't on a no-fly list. So it it seems to me that it's like I, I'm not sure that it, it seems to me that it has limited efficacy. Whereas a law that boldly took uh, stand on limiting capacity of semi-automatic weapons might uh, be more effective in actually uh, limiting the amount of mayhem and number of casualties that these events. Uh, uh, frequently spawn. You know, I, I probably agree with you, um, but I'm working within a body that has 180 other members in the, in the Democratic caucus, and this is what everyone could get uh, excited about and speak on. Uh, if you saw what I spoke on when I had a chance to uh, address my colleagues at uh, 12.30 a.m. this morning, uh, I talked about assault weapons, and I talked about the CDC as well as the no-fly, no-buy. Uh, Congressman, it, it sounds like what you're saying is that the the underlying policy question with the no-fly, no-buy and other things up for debate in the Congress right now is irrelevant, and that what Democrats are trying to do is just is seize on the moment and, and create a spectacle and, and change the nature of the debate over gun control. Is that right? Well, I don't know that I would agree with you word for word there. I don't, I don't think that it was irrelevant, and I don't think that we were seeking to achieve a, a spectacle. Um, but were we to uh, pass uh, no fly, no buy, uh, I certainly wouldn't be satisfied, and I wouldn't you know, uh, claim mission accomplished and, and walk away from it. Uh, I, as I just said earlier, I think I agree with many of your concerns around it and that the um, the fundamental issues are much more complex, more difficult, and are going to be uh, therefore less politically popular. I mean, some of the things that we talked about have approval ratings of you know 90 percent amongst Republicans and 85 percent amongst Democrats. In other words, uh, beyond members of Congress, they they seem to be uniformly popular. But uh, some of the trickier issues. Uh, around gun violence and the shooting deaths in Chicago, for example, that the New York Times investigated, aren't going to be resolved so easily. It doesn't mean that Congress shouldn't act, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use this attention that's now focused on us and on this issue as a result of the sit-in that John Lewis led. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't use that towards some greater good and make progress where we can. And if there is momentum around something like uh, no fly, no buy. I think that's a great place to start. That's that's something that's achievable and that we can do. As I was leaving the floor, leaving the sit-in this morning after being up all night and uh, being with my colleagues, and and really our only interaction with Republicans was to, you know, hear them laughing or taunting or uh, you know there were some showdowns on the floor. Right, we saw some last night with Louis Gomer. So you know it wasn't the most pleasant interaction for, for either side. But I ran into David Jolly, uh, Republican of Florida, new member, uh, who's not seeking re-election. But having said that, uh, we stopped, had a civil conversation, and he said, uh, I think there's a way that we can work together on, uh, on uh, things like closing the loopholes, on things like 
um, having a terrorist list, list that matches a no uh, no gun list um, that address you know due process issues uh, or other concerns that that our side has. So um, I'm I'm often optimistic, and I'm certainly invigorated and energized. I mean, the fact that I can even talk after having not slept for you know I don't know right. many hours um, by uh, what I just was a part of, and, and not just in the chamber, and not just with my colleagues in the Democratic Caucus, but just what what I was a part of in this country uh, last night, which in many ways was us responding to the country, yeah. was was us responding to the transmissions coming in from uh, from all around the U.S. Well, we had, we've had Chris Murphy on the show, and he told us this, the same thing he says every time there's a mass shooting, which is that uh, Congress is complicit in these acts of violence, and uh, at the very least, you guys have branded yourself as 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 a as a party that don't want to be complicit in it anymore. Whether that whether where that goes from here, I guess is for t- only time can tell. But uh, Congressman O'Rourke, thanks for joining us, and thanks for speaking so frankly about this matter with with us. Now, go get some sleep. I will. Thank you. All right, folks, we have a very fine show. We can't wait for you to hear it. We will be right back. 
on things like field work, um, but you've typically had a very strong campaign partner in that process. Um, and you've had a strong campaign partner for to do two things, to drive TV advertising, um, to drive message through TV. Candidates can get um, much better rates on TV than committees can, than super PACs That's can. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that it's advantageous for the candidate to handle the TV. They're also really kind of hand-holding the RNC uh, in terms of the, the, you know, where are we targeting? Uh, what states are we targeting and going after? Um, that's been a huge function, you know, strategically of the campaign. The RNC really just goes where the candidate goes. Now, if it's now the fact that the RNC can raise more money than Trump, um, they be, Trump becomes very much the junior partner in that relationship. He doesn't really control his own destiny. And so it could be the RNC could build this field operation for Trump that in October gets used for other things, like oh, defending Republican Senate candidates. Yes. Divorce. Uh, if it's if not just a you know a divorce, but in the sense of um, you know in the sense of pragmatically looking at the map, where uh, are these dollars going to make the most? Uh, you know, where where are yeah. they going to have the most impact? Where are they going to go furthest? Now, the good thing is that the Senate battlegrounds line up pretty well with the presidential battlegrounds. There's only a few states that are going to have really competitive Senate elections that aren't aren't also competitive at the presidential level. Right. So they can say, hey, we have a very robust GOTV operation in Ohio, in Florida. Um, uh, but uh, whether or not um, those staff and the, the scripts, the phone scripts and everything are going to mention Donald Trump's name is an interesting question. Um, if Donald Trump does not bring his own resources to the table to be able to control a lot of those decisions. Let's flash back. It's after 2012 election. Robert Draper writes a big piece in The New York Times magazine talking about many mm -hmm. of the sort of younger Republican digerati that were sort of left on the sidelines. You're named in it. Uh, your, your partner, Echelon, Kristen Soltis Anderson, is named in it. And it was sort of like set the stage for this kind of resurgence from the from a lot of the digital strategists who really in that article twisted the knife in the GOP establishment for their failings. Flash forward now, you're not such quaint problems we had back then. It's I mean, true. it was just strategy it's... and tactics. We could actually flash out those things. Now we have much deeper problems, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. intrinsic problems with, yeah. The, with the relationship between the candidate. What are what are the sort of things that you would bring to the table for a campaign? What's your pitch? You'd come, you'd come to, if you were on a presidential campaign, what are the things you would say, I could give you this, that, and the other thing? Um, it really is a function of, you know, do you want to win and can you win in the most efficient manner? Uh, if you're a presidential candidate, you're looking to get to 270 electoral votes. That means um, winning the right combination of states in order to do that and finding the most efficient, cost-effective route in order to do that. Now, that sounds dry and technical and boring to a lot of, to a lot of folks. And I, I think what we all would say in the analytics space, in the digital space, and you know, whoever is doing their, their slight piece of this, none of this is going to make the difference between a candidate who is going to lose by 10 and winning, uh, right? I mean, this is all things that uh, that, Operate make, on the margins. Uh, that are very much on the margins, that may be a couple points here and there. Um, and uh, we rely on candidates to get us close to that margin. Like, uh, say, if you can get within one or two, um, then we're going to put you over the top. Um, we're going to maximize. Uh, we're going to get out the vote. Um, we're going to raise more money. Um, we're going to um, target people more effectively. We're going to talk to the right people um, when we're at the door, you know, when we're knocking on their door. You have to be spinning your wheels with people who aren't receptive to the message. Right. And if people aren't receptive or if they've completely tuned out the candidate, um, then there's not very much that uh, we can do um, for that. So this is kind of the irony that, that, that Donald Trump has set himself up for. Um, he is running a campaign in which uh, right now not even the best digital strategy could really help him. Not even the best communication strategy can really help him be, be because of who he is and who he's alienated. So one of the things he's foregoing, because he's, he's, he's actually kind of like very famously and probably to a lot of people who work in this business rather arrogantly, just dismissed uh, sure. this whole level of campaign infrastructure out of hand. He says it's not worth the money. But it sounds to me like what he's foregoing is – specificity and range and the ability to just like stick and move so that you're not completely out there flying blind among the larger electorate. That guy really thinks that the rallies are what's going to earn him the win. 
Uh, well, that's true. And it has been – I mean you could argue in the primaries that, that those types of things work pretty well yeah. because it's a pretty sparse information environment a, a lot of times. And so if you build up this huge advantage that no other candidate has ever really had in earned media, then you can really just dominate the whole process, right? I mean you can just run the table everywhere. Um, but that's not going to happen in a general election because you have two candidates who are relatively evenly matched in terms of – who are going to be relatively evenly matched in terms of media coverage. There's going to be a lot more scrutiny. Uh, on Donald Trump. And you have support. But most importantly, you have bases of support that are very much locked in on either side. It's going to be 40, 45 percent on either side, no matter what. And even if the, 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 the bottom completely falls out on Trump, he will have 45 percent of the vote. Um, so it, it's a very different environment. People are much less persuadable than they yeah. might be in a primary situation. Um, so so I, I think I think it's very much, um, you know, the dynamic is different. He can't just roll through the general election uh, dominating media coverage and with none of this other stuff really mattering because it's a much more of a game of inches. Um, we, were, we were talking before we walked in the studio about how his basic decisions seem so off. He will tell fundraisers that he's going to turn California – and New Jersey right. into swing states, but he takes his road show to Georgia and Texas. Right. I I read an anecdotal report of a campaign uh, stop he just made in Richmond, Virginia. The person said there was no get out the vote effort underway going right. on, no attempt to sign people sure. up. Talk to voters specifically, get information, that kind of thing. So he's been doing this now. The reason he goes to Georgia and Texas is because he has to raise money, right? I mean, all candidates do that, right? Mitt Romney would have gone to Georgia and Texas probably, and he wouldn't have talked about it. Right. Um, so the, the word has been that, um, yeah, Trump wasn't really interested in just doing these trips just for fundraising purposes. Um, he's doing rallies in those states too, and that's because he just likes to do rallies. He loves these rallies, loves the energy, loves the room. Um, the problem is you're starting now to see the media, CNN, cutting away from his rallies because uh, yeah. maybe Hillary's giving a speech at the same time. They can't necessarily chalk it up to uh, John Kasich is speaking at the same time, and he's guess what? Gosh, he's not just not that interesting. Right. CNN, the you know, producers can't make those types of decisions anymore. Um, they have to. I think there's at least a powerful norm to give equal time um, to both candidates. And so he's not going to get the same benefit he, he, as he has um, from those rallies and, and, and pursuing that earned media strategy. What is your take on the entire contested convention theory? Because it's been sort of it's bubbled up from sure. time to time. It seems to once again be sort of mounting its presence in the news cycle. We are told that dozens of delegates, which yeah. we should tell listeners is far, far too few to do anything, right. uh, but are trying to organize themselves at that level. But there are a lot of moving parts that would have to happen in right. close succession for a contested convention to happen at this point. Uh, there's actually not that many moving parts. There's one big moving part, which is the rules committee has to agree to change the rules. But to, then the delegates would have to be like, yep. What yeah, and then they would have to vote for it, of course. And uh, But obviously, I mean, one would probably follow from the other. Right. And, you know, I mean, look, it's all very unlikely at this point, but uh, maybe a couple more weeks of Donald Trump's uh, antics, and you never know. I mean, that's sort of, uh, and, and that's why you can never rule anything out. I mean, two weeks ago, if you had asked me two weeks ago, um, no, I, I would have said, no, there's not going to be any more Republicans that get on the Never Trump bandwagon. It's uh, everyone's pretty much from here on out going to endorse him. Now I'm all the way back on the other end where it's I'm not <laughs> sure anyone else is going to endorse him who hasn't already endorsed him um, because we've seen the erratic. I mean, just the veering and the erratic uh, in behavior. And, you know, even if he's on his meds, you know, on, uh, you know, Paul Manafort <laughs> gives him a script uh, that doesn't seem to last very much him. beyond one night. He might give a speech one night. And I think that was, this was the night he won the California primary, yeah. the end of the primary season. And he seemed pretty reasonable right. in that speech. And then, you know, then obviously the Orlando thing happened and there's a whole sequence of erratic reaction. I, I just think people don't like that uncertainty. And so I think people are going to start to keep their distance more and more. One last question, because you, you I think, uh, parse all the information you're saying about elections in a sort of more refined way. What is something about this race, something maybe fundamentally or maybe something that's in play that most of us in the media are missing right now? Um, 
This is a, you know, it's always the that's always the sixty four thousand dollar question. Right. Um, so I'm hoping to maybe take this and make sixty four thousand. Yeah, no, I mean I, that, that's, but I think that the to your original topic, I to your the original discussion point here. This has sort of been a great. There's been a great, um, you know, speculation here by political scientists I follow on Twitter. It's like, wow, normally this stuff like we never really know what worked and what didn't because there right. hasn't been this environment where no somebody has refused to campaign or has tr- refused to run a traditional race or refused to seemingly refuse to raise money. And now we're actually going to find out, right? I mean, what, the, <laughs> what that's like, what that's like, what that what that means, and um, and so that's like just a very interesting. I mean, even you know, part of me wishes that maybe Donald Trump stays in the race all the way through, even though that would probably be a disaster for Republicans. So we can point to uh, clients in the future and say, "Don't do that." And we have a very <laughs> clear case study. But then the real question is: but against what's the baseline? What would have happened if? You know, you had a Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz survive through the nomination process. My personal opinion is that um, just given Hillary Clinton's unpopularity, yeah. that Republicans would have been favored. But that's not a universal opinion. Well, so there are a lot of models. And, and there's a lot of people could say, well, at the end of the day, Trump lost by three and it wasn't so bad. You know, maybe he didn't do as well as Mitt Romney. Maybe he was like within a point or two of Mitt Romney. And that's going to inform a lot of post-election analysis, yeah. right? Do you think? Do you think that uh, obviously there there's going to be fallout one way or the other from this, and probably something that not everyone gets away cleanly on? But do you think that what Donald Trump is doing is some kind of black swan event, or is this something that's replicable? I think it's theoretically replicable. Um, I, yeah, I was just thinking to what extent. Um, whether or not win or lose or and probably lose or lose big or lose small, right. maybe that's sort of the the the, the formula we need to uh, be thinking about. Um, have future Trumps been incentivized or disincentivized yeah. by this? I mean, if he comes out of this just looking like he's been beat up, uh, looking like, you know, the party has revolted, there have been so many convulsions that it's just not going to seem worth it or is his brand or his stature somehow enhanced by this exercise that even if he doesn't win which doesn't sound like it's the it was the end game for him going into this so he might see this as a success will other uh, would be trumps would be you know rich people um yeah. see this as a kind of well i got it into the general election wow who who would have thought that could have happened? I was part of the discussion for 18 months straight. Um, so it really is a matter of really kind of looking at what the incentives are, frankly. Uh, you know, and uh, has Trump and have would-be Trumps been incentivized or disincentivized to behave this way in the future? You know, my my personal belief is that, you know, Republicans should continue to uh, really make it very painful, uh, you know, for for Trump, for a lot of people involved for the sake of future elections. Right. So the lesson that we draw it loud and clear is do not do this in any way, shape or form ever again. All right. That's a great place to leave it. Patrick, thanks for joining right. us today. It's Thank you. It's a real pleasure to have you on. And we will be right back. We're back. So we've spoken a lot on this podcast about the uh, Trump campaign, such that it is. But we must remember that there is another big presidential campaign being mounted in the land, that being mounted by former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And joining us today to talk about how this campaign is shaping up and what challenges lie ahead, uh, we have Daniela Leger. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Um, former uh, former special assistant to President Obama in the White House. Now she's with the Center for American Progress. Daniela, thank you for joining us today. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. So here's some things we know. We know that right now, on a purely level, on a pure level of campaign infrastructure and funding and message and people not getting fired all the time, 
the Clinton campaign is a comparative model of competence and tranquility compared to her main opponent, Donald Trump. Yes. Like, <laughs> that, is, that is accurate. I mean, that's fairly accurate to say. She's out fundraising him, and he he has, oh, like, hardly any staff. <clears throat> Do you worry that this might engender a sort of overconfidence? <laughs> I have always worried about overconfidence uh, because nothing about this election cycle has been normal or right or makes any kind of sense. So, you know, in a in a normal cycle, the fact that Donald Trump has 30 field staff um, in June, uh, you know, would be laughable. Um, and the fact that he raised absolutely no money would also be, you know, he's not really running a serious campaign, you know, yet here we are, he gets tons of free publicity. Uh, I think if you probably added up all the time that he's on TV, it would maybe equal the ad buys that are happening on the other side. So I, I think it's important for people to to remember that even though on paper it looks like things should be real easy for the Clinton campaign, nothing about this cycle uh, is easy, will be easy, and I think it's going to be a tough. I think it's going to be tough to defeat Donald Trump. Well, okay. So the the during the primary season, obviously Trump uh, over his opponents, like largely had an asymmetric advantage in terms of media coverage. And I think it was largely spawned by the fact that he was willing to say outrageous things and cameras were willing to flock and, and cover them. Now, in the general election, what one expects to happen is for a certain amount of structure to take over and the media start to see things as more even-handed, uh, less asymmetrical. But does the Clinton campaign or do you see... Any, do you have any sort of plan to combat the potential that he's going to continue to command uh, all this media attention? You know, I think, you know, not speaking for the campaign, but I'm pretty sure that they are preparing for asymmetrical warfare is what I've been calling it for a while. Like, you can't run a traditional campaign against Donald Trump because he's not a traditional candidate. Uh, and all the things that normally happen at this time, him sort of pivoting uh, to a general audience, um, becoming more disciplined, as we've discovered over the past week or so, none of that has happened. You know, even in his most recent speech with the teleprompter, he's still saying things that are inaccurate. He's still doing, you know, sort of uh, just personal attacks against Hillary Clinton. So, you know, I think that the campaign recognizes that this isn't 2012, it's not 2008. You have to be able to run both a substantive campaign, but also, you know, get a little dirty, because that's, I think, what it's going to take to get underneath his skin. But do you see that, do you wonder if there's maybe some something of a disadvantage of going completely scorched earth on the guy? I mean, one of the things that, one of the things that a lot of people say is that he just has, he lies so much that it becomes almost difficult or irrelevant to fact check him. And there's so many different points of purchase that the average attack ad could have on Donald Trump, be it things like Trump University, be it his open racism, uh, that it actually, there's there's just so, it's such a target-rich environment that you maybe don't get a real tree to grow in the field. You may have just like a bunch of saplings. Is, is there any concern that that there's not just that one thing you can define him as? Because it seemed to me like four years ago, Mitt Romney was raising a lot of money and sort of putting fear, the fear of God in the Obama reelection campaign. But at the same time, they drilled down on one specific aspect of his life, his plutocracy, to define him. How do you define Donald Trump? It's hard. I mean, I think that is like the biggest challenge. You're, you're right. There's so many different attacks. There's so many ways you could go at him that, you know, you, you sort of run the risk of being too diffuse. But again, this isn't 2012. And maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe it's, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. And you have to attack every little way in order to sort of bring him down. You know, I think Elizabeth Warren um, has hit on something that works for her. You know, you've heard her say over and over again now he's a, a racist, thin-skinned bully. And from that line flows all of the rest of her line of attacks. And so maybe it's, you know, thinking of what is that one overarching thing that then can encompass everything else about Donald Trump that you want to attack. You're probably talking to um, any any number of people uh, on the Democratic side, and I'm sure they all have advice about about what to say about Donald Trump. Is is there any kind of consensus or is everybody sort of like in this kind of like welter of disagreement of what the best thing to say about Donald Trump is? I don't know if there's disagreement. I, I think there is there is acknowledgement that there is a lot to choose from. 
uh, I think you're going to see an emerging theme of, you know, he's he's a con man. You know, he, he, you know, he conned his way through business. You know, he's conned his way through the primary process. He's trying to con the American people about what he would do for this country. And you can't really believe the things that he says. Um, you know, and I, I think that that might be that might be something you hear more of moving forward. Another challenge that I, I feel that the Clinton campaign is facing is the situation. The situation is that Donald Trump's message, such as it is, is still deeply resonating with a certain portion of the electorate, including a portion of the electorate that the Democrats would probably like to win. For example, in Pennsylvania, uh, or in what 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 sort of the wags call Pennsylvania. We're talking about very blue collar area. There isn't a lot of Make up room and other demographics to to uh, sort of like put against the white working class vote that seems to be going in Trump's way right now in Pennsylvania. The polls, uh, even after this terrible week Trump has had and the terrible coverage he's received, the polls in Pennsylvania are still really, really quite tight. And I think maybe Clinton has a one or two point advantage in the poll average as I'm talking to you today. Um, do you worry that there is going to be a couple swing states? that are going to be harder than perhaps expected to keep in the Democratic side? I mean, Pennsylvania is one obvious one, and Ohio is another one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there is some concern there, but I also, you know, it is early. Uh, I am a firm believer in these polls right now don't mean much. And, you know, come talk to me in early September and when people really start paying attention to this race, uh, and then and then we can reassess everything there. Uh, you know, but I, I do think that there... There is a segment of you know white working class voters that are attracted to the mess some of the messages that Donald Trump um, is talking about, but I think it's incumbent on Democrats in the Clinton campaign to make sure that these populations understand that again you know if you want to use the con man message that what he's saying he's trying to sell you a bill of goods and what he wants to put forward the policies that he supports are not going to help you uh, and he's not and he's just trying to tell you you know what he thinks you want to hear but in reality you know the policies of the Republican Party are, are detrimental uh, to working-class Americans and then put forth you know why it is that Hillary Clinton's economic policies are better for that community and you know look it's it's a tough thing um, you know over the past couple of years, I think Democrats have traditionally had a bit of a tough time with this population, but I don't, I don't think it's any more difficult necessarily than it was in you know 2008. All right. Well, you know, it's. I, I think that it's. You you wouldn't be a, a, a Democrat if you weren't looking at what looks like a pretty easy win and not feeling like, oh, we could, we could, we're don't don't give into complacency and overconfidence. That's kind of the Democratic Party way, right? I mean, it certainly is. I don't know if you remember, but in two thousand eight, there was this meme that I won't say that was going around um, with President Obama, you know, looking very sternly, saying, "Everyone, chill." out yeah yeah sure um, so it may be hanging on my wall right now so uh, you know I, I think there probably will come a time where there's going to be a new one uh with hillary clinton in the fall <laughs> all right well there are there are many dank memes to come in this election uh daniela lechef she is uh she works for the center for american progress and is a former uh white house assistant under barack obama thank you for joining us today uh please come back I would love to. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. And we will be right back. Hey, we're back. And uh, joining me right now, we got Zach Carter. Hello. And uh, Travis Waldron, you are also back. I am. So the last time we had you on... We were talking about the Olympics, and we confined our sort of discussion to the myriad ways that the actual Olympics in Brazil were kind of a looming disaster. Mainly, we focused on the problems that are ongoing in Brazil. We talked about the Zika virus, talked about the political disruption that's going on there, and we talked about uh, the economy in Brazil and 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 how it was uh, it was it was in recession after a long period of booming when they won the Olympics. I mean, they thought that the boom times would never stop. Um, but today we're going to focus more on the Olympics themselves, and we're talking to focus on the Olympics themselves as perhaps uh, a, a huge, huge, huge engine of income inequality. Um, every time a group gets together, we've had them in D.C. and say, we want to bring the Olympics to D.C., 
one of the big selling points is if we have the Olympics in D.C., you got to understand that we're going to get so much infrastructure improvement. Oh, it's going to be great. This is an opportunity we wouldn't ordinarily have had. Does that ever work out anymore? Well, it depends on what you mean. The infrastructure sometimes works. Right. We have more Brazil is indicative. A lot of a lot of cities are indicative of the problem with the basic mechanisms of the Olympics is they make all these promises and the things that definitely get done, that always get done, are the stadiums. Yeah. The things you need to host the Olympics. Right. You can host an Olympics without a new highway. You can't host the Olympics without the centerpiece stadium. So that stuff it takes precedent. And as you get closer to deadlines, we're seeing it in Rio, we've seen it in London, elsewhere, you always hear these construction delays. Will they get the venues done? Well, of course they're going to get the venues done. The bigger question is whether they're going to get all those other things they promised done, and if they don't, are they going to go back and do it after the games? So in, in D.C., when they were bidding on 2024, and, and like you said, you had all these people saying, this is how we get the federal money to improve Metro. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a huge sure, point. in theory... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other the other problem there though is there should be a uh, what's the thing called a democracy, <laughs> yes. uh, which actually an accountable, publicly accountable democracy, which makes those types of spending decisions, not uh, the International Olympic Committee. And that's the whole failure <laughs> of it too, right? Is you know we could also just improve the metro, right? right? <laughs> we could also just build affordable housing. Every time Rio, I hear that, I think Rio could just have done the transit line expansions that they're doing or just redone their airports. You don't need the Olympics to do that. I understand the argument that it it greases the wheels for it. It, it <clears throat> puts a deadline on it that maybe makes it more likely. But what we've seen is that very often those things still get left behind and undone. Here's something that um, Robert A. Bod and Victor Matheson in their study, uh, Bidding for the Olympics, colon, Fool's Gold. I love anytime there's a study or a title with a colon in it that's the best. <laughs> Quote, diverting scarce capital and other resources from more productive uses to the Olympics very likely translates into slower rates of economic growth than that which could be realized in the absence of hosting an Olympic Games. And the University of Toronto sociology professor Helen Lensky, uh, in a study of her own, uh, said that the typical pattern in host cities is steep cost overruns. But the organization, spon- the organization sponsoring the event never learned from that experience. Yeah, I think the, there was a study from the University of Oxford in uh, ahead of the London Games that the the average Olympics overruns by 179 percent. Yeah, that's which uh, which so is you, when <laughs> that's so you when you find that. that's when you find your money that was going <clears throat> uh-huh. to improve Metro. Suddenly yeah, I mean, if you look stolen. at London, London's a great example of this. The cost for the Olympic Stadium, I believe, is still rising. Because they con- they converted it to a soccer stadium for West Ham United, right? And that conversion then overran. So the stadium overran, then the the conversion overran, and on and on. And if they had wanted to just build a nice stadium for, for their West for Ham their United. soccer team, they could have done that, and it would have been cheaper. They could have told the <laughs> soccer team to build their own stadium. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably would have balked at that, and they would probably still have to be at the bowling grounds, which is a great stadium. Right, by the they way. already had a stadium, which <laughs> is a wonderful one. Um, and you know, it's but it's it, it is very typical that they overrun. Uh, and then you look at the other things that Matheson and Body have looked at is that you very often capture the benefits because look, London, Rio, Paris, the places that host the Olympics are usually tourist destinations anyway. Right. So the money that c- floods into those cities for these three weeks is money that probably would have been coming into those cities in those three weeks anyway. And a lot of the people who benefit from the Olympics are developers that uh, very often aren't based in those countries. So the money doesn't stay in the country. And right. you, you get leakages and all these great economic terms that, you know, the, the bottom line is they don't have the benefit to the people that they say they do. They have great benefit for developers and politicians and people who are in the International Olympic Committee and the sponsors who get tax breaks and, I, and I on mean, and on. The IOC is essentially kind of a big backsheesh laundering operation in the first place. I mean, this is a this is an organization like FIFA where it's ripe, rife with cronyism, rights with shady bribes. This is an organization that once gave Nikolai Ceausescu an award, which is, to me, to my mind, insane. Uh, Can you explain who Nikolai Ceausescu is for people? Sorry, yeah. Nikolai Ceausescu was the dictator who ran Romania for a long time. (laughs) 
uh, and murdered people and mm. was forcibly removed from office after a long, long struggle. And he was one of the most evil, sodden pieces of shit that ever walked the face of the earth. Um, so really, he fit right in well with the IOC, <laughs> <laughs> to, to be perfectly frank. Um, let's talk about just sort of the the effect that the Olympics rolls into town and there are obviously people already living in that in, in, in that city. And uh, how are they how are ordinary people living in Olympic host cities affected by this machine rolling into town for two or three week period. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you, you talked about too. Olympic construction. Yeah. Uh, but no one ever, I mean, we, we spend considerably less time on the destruction and you see in Rio, this is happening in a neighborhood that's right across uh, a lagoon from the Olympic, uh, the major Olympic park. Uh, 90% of the houses have been destroyed. That happened in London. It's happened in Atlanta. It happens everywhere. And, and, the victims, you won't be surprised of this, are very often poor and minority, almost exclusively poor and, and minority. And yet, these are the same people who, uh, you know, when 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 cities are trying to trying to draw the Olympics to their to their states, they say, "Oh, well, well, with with all this development money, this will help you guys." Sure. And actually, and, what well, it does they, is they destroy actually their put house. that in their bid that will build affordable housing, will build <laughs> amenities for people who in communities who have been underserved. And what we saw in London, for instance, is that the amount of affordable housing that they've actually built is considerably less than what was promised. Uh, You've seen cities where the net new housing is actually negative. The number of houses they destroyed is more than the number of new places they build. And a lot of times, too, you end up going from social housing to market rate housing. So it's affordable, but then the house... Local housing prices skyrocket because they poured all this new development Mm -hmm. into a neighborhood and people are priced out that way. And, you know, that doesn't even go into, if you look at Rio, the the environmental destruction, uh, which we saw not again, not just in Rio, but in Sochi, in London, in other places, in Beijing. you know, the, the <laughs> yeah. I, I will say I think Beijing would have had some environmental destruction. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure, of course, of course. But that, I mean, I think that's the thing is you, you when you talk about what the Olympic the effect of the Olympics, they very often exacerbate existing problems rather than fixing anything. Right, right. right. Well, just to just to wrap out of this, I just want to you, Zach. You mentioned that uh, that these you talked about how democracy should serve their people instead of waiting for the IOC to do it for them. It's interesting to note, we watched in Boston, the citizens of Boston reject the Olympics. The 2022 Winter Games are having a hard time finding a host because voters in Switzerland said no, voters in Germany said no, voters in Poland said no. Sweden too. Sweden too. And the only remaining contenders, well, I think Ukraine had their own problems, you know, on their ongoing, you know, war, s- war with Russia. <laughs> but I, I think the only remaining uh, uh the only remaining uh, competitors for that were uh, were Kazakhstan and China. Right. I mean, and that's the that's the scary thing about the Olympics right now is they're so they're not for very democratic yeah. anyway. Mm-hmm. And now the a lot of the countries where there would be at least some democratic oversight, at least some mechanism for people to resist them. Are are stepping back. They're pulling back because they're struggling to win them. Now that's not necessarily the case with twenty twenty four, Paris and Los Angeles sure, sure. and on and on. Or a lot of democratic countries are bidding on them. But we are seeing it that you know it's it's really hard for a dem- in a, in democratic countries for for cities to do this. I mean, you look at the polls in the United States. They've shown that a, a majority of Americans. Just don't want love them. the idea of of the United States hosting the Olympics until the until you pull until you try to put it in their city, <laughs> and then they're like, "Hell no, go away." Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's yeah. got to be some place in Nebraska or Wyoming where nobody lives. <laughs> Tulsa put a bid on the. On they the, did. On Tulsa the, put really? a preliminary yeah. bid in. Yeah, and they didn't follow through with it. But yeah, I yeah. would. I mean, I, I don't know if the people of Tulsa really want that. <laughs> well, I, I just but think it's okay with they me. They need a new velodrome. <laughs> yeah, right for the Tulsa. The, the IOC and, auto- <laughs> and global autocracies and petrochemical dictatorships pretty much go hand in glove. And developers. And developers. And Foreign I think, developers love these things. Yep, yep. And I think you'll see a growing trend of these Olympic Games being staged in countries like that. Do we that. need the Olympics anymore? I mean, is it really important to happen? What, 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 I don't think we need – look, I don't think you're going to be able to get people to get on board with let's never yeah. do the Olympics again. But I think you could probably – I think there's – if we take a look at this, do we need them to look the way they do now? 
Could we do these in multiple countries? Could we do these as a, as a spread out event? Could we just make them smaller? Yeah. It, uh, if anyone's interested, there's a book by Mark Perryman called Why the Olympics Aren't Good for Us and How They Can Be, and he sort of like reimagines the Olympics as something that actually is sustainable and doesn't hurt people. But unfortunately, no one's implementing his idea, so we're just going to have to leave it there. Um, guys, thanks. Thank you. And uh, we will be right back. And we're back, and we're back to talk about a subject that is probably near and dear to our hearts here, food stamps and supplemental insurance for needy families who otherwise perhaps go hungry. Uh, In Maine, the dunderheaded governor, Paul LePage, has had a little bit of a food stamp freakout, and it could affect hundreds of thousands of Mainers. Here to talk about this is uh, a resident expert on food stamp policy, Arthur Delaney. Hi. So, uh, Paula Page, man. Paula Page has... Who I can't help. I, every time I say his name, I think his name is Paula Page, but it's Paul LePage. LePage, like Pepe Le Pew. Yeah, Paul LePage. Paul LePage, for people who don't know, is uh, deserves a, a much greater national profile for being just really uh, unusual, very uh, proto-Trump yeah, type politician. Um, but he doesn't have quite the the uh, je ne sais quoi <laughs> that Trump has for for uh, bringing, you know, commanding large audiences and, and making himself a celebrity. Yeah, in, pre- in, previous, in previous Paul Lepage outbursts, he has uh, he has done the whole like weird racist there are people with doing drugs coming into Maine and yeah, impregnating like, our women our white women yeah he was part of the whole uh, let's add another layer of quarantine to people who don't have Ebola right um, he's been kind of a bit of a well he's really just quite a, he's basically a degenerate so an amazing <laughs> but basically uh, yeah. Maine, Maine elected a degenerate as their as their uh, governor so I was more going for the word flamboyant. <laughs> well, he's a flamboyant degenerate. So p- food stamps. Uh, how many people in Maine are currently uh, enrolled in SNAP programs or food stamp programs? 190,000, which is 14% of the population in Maine. And he is upset about food stamps because those people who receive those benefits could, if they wanted to, buy soda or candy with it. Yeah. Food stamps, properly known as the Supplemental Nutrition uh, assistance program is the the nation's biggest safety net program, and uh, you don't get it on stamps anymore. You get a little debit card, and everyone can see you use it at the store. And uh, so, forty five million Americans use this, and even more see it get used. So it's like one of the programs, federal programs that people are most intimately familiar, and people get so pissed about what they see poor people use those food stamps on. At the cash register at the supermarket. So but it's soda? Th- that's what this is all about. Ever since Ronald Reagan said he saw a strapping young buck buy a T-bone steak with his food stamps. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the male gaze right there. But, but, but okay, he bought it. So he saw someone buy a steak. You know you can walk into a grocery store and, and buy beef at cut rate prices if you wanted to. You can walk into a shopper's food warehouse right now and, and buy beef. I, don't. People, isn't it good that people are eating right? It's it's, it's healthy co- food. It's, it comes from this idea that this sort of notion that if you're poor and you're getting help, you want to buy the most affordable and nutritious food only, uh, beans and rice, basically. So what Paula Page has been crusading about now is junk food. Uh, soda and candy, and this is there's a history of Republicans going for this. Uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg did sure. this in New York. Yeah. So what? But what is so different is that LePage has initiated a game of chicken with the federal government, which will not let him or any state ban certain types of food from the program because this is supposed to be you spend it on whatever nutrition you want. We don't want to play uh, parent <laughs> yeah, with exactly. your purchasing. So he's saying, if you don't let us ban candy and soda from food stamps, we're not going to run the program anymore. 
why has he got such a hard on about SNAP recipients getting soda and candy? I think for the the reasons we're talking about that, you know, people are really riled up about are the there... program. He's got a strong base of support from constituents who say, you know, they don't like seeing people use these programs to buy things that they think they shouldn't be buying. Uh, and this is a national phenomenon. Okay. I mean, I was going to, I was wondering if maybe he was at least tethering this to some kind of anti-obesity crusade. My he next is. question. No, oh, he, he is. is. Yeah. I okay. should have said that. Yeah. Okay. He's, so, it's all about obesity. So really my next question would have been, does he, does, does his public, do his public schools have candy and soda vending machines in them? Because that's probably where he wants to target the obesity. Well, the, well you know what? This is a, a point he made. He's, you know, the Obama administration has actually cracked down on unhealthy food in public schools sure. in the National School Lunch I'm Program. I'm totally on board. So Paula Page is like, if you're doing that, why won't you let me ban junk food from food stamps since the state administers the program even though the dollars are federal? Whatever happened to just making a good case about it and seeing if you can get the feds to go along with it. So that's what he initially tried to do. He says, we'll run, you know, let us waive the rules and we'll do a, a demonstration project. But this wasn't really a real request to test out whether they had a scheme to make SNAP recipients eat healthier. It was a statewide demonstration. So the Obama administration was like, look, you don't have a control group. You're not really trying to evaluate what will happen if you if 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 you really were uh, trying to tell us this is an effort to make people healthier, you're just trying to prohibit that you know all food stamp recipients from buying soda. So they said you need to you know redesign your proposal, and you know we'll continue to consider it. So LePage gets this letter, and then this week says, you know what, screw you guys. He said you're letting an endless parade of Mars bars and uh, and energy drinks. Yeah, that's literally what he said. And you're looking the other way, and we've got an obesity <laughs> epidemic. So you know the USDA better just uh, you know start looking for office space to run this program. The USDA told me we can't run food stamps for a state like we don't have the authority, we don't have the funding. So what could actually happen here, according to the USDA, is that food stamps could just stop in Maine. That's ridiculous. Why doesn't he just redesign his demonstration project to tailor it to some kind of scientific method? I I think it's you know they don't they don't really want to yeah. do they don't really want to design a study and just like the USDA doesn't really expect them to design a study everyone knows what this is really about it's about controlling what poor people use these benefits for um, and we're we reached an impasse this week where nobody knows what's going to happen this has never happened before and it's potentially a lot of people losing this uh, pretty significant support. For food, it's a uh, you know one hundred twenty five dollars per month per person. So, so oh god. So LePage actually thought that that there was ever an option for the USD, USDA to set up shop in Maine and run the program that his government's supposed to run. That's literally what he thought. He no, well, I mean, or was I that also part of this so, disingenuousness? He, he put it in this really uh, 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 riled up letter where he said, "I suggest you start looking for commercial office space in Maine. <laughs> like, you, if you really wanted that to happen, you wouldn't do it in this characteristic flamboyant LePage fashion. You would, you know, uh, through back channels, talk to them and see about it. Uh, it's, it's an. And his spokesman admitted that." He loves getting attention. So to some extent, that's what this is all about. It's just him needing attention. Yeah, but we have an unprecedented situation where uh, the nutrition support for almost 200,000 people is actually kind of being toyed with right now. Mm. Uh, but my guess would be they won't really go over that cliff. Do you think? I mean, Paul Lepage. Paul Lepage. I'm gonna just gonna call him Paul Lepage from now on. Paul Lepage has has uh, has really towed the cliff quite a number of times in the past. Um, he seems to me to want to jump over a cliff at some point in time. Otherwise, what? Uh, otherwise, what? What? What other force gives his whole govern governorship meaning? Yeah, you know, it could, maybe this is the hill he wants to die on. Uh, other governors have done things similar, but not gone nearly as far. Scott Walker, for instance, sued the Obama administration. They want to do drug testing on food stamps. So there's a template for challenging the feds on this program, and uh, I think he's he's just pushing it a little bit farther. I sort of never understood the drug testing part of this asp- uh, of, of food stamps because 
for two reasons. One, if you're going to drug test food stamp recipients, that means you're going to spend a shit ton of money doing a thing that's going to yield maybe paltry results in the end. Second thing is, is that, sure, maybe you find someone who does drugs, but they still need to eat, right? <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think this is a general uh, belief that nobody's going to starve in America. That's amazing to me that people believe that. I, well, is anyone starving in America right now? Yes. I, I don't think so. There I, are lots of people who go hungry every day. There are college students who go – there are college athletes. Well, but before, go, before this program existed, I think people literally did die, uh, but – these days we measure hunger by uh, a term called food insecurity, and it's like a rate we've got a rate of food insecurity about fourteen percent. But that means fourteen percent of people at some point in the last year, you know, didn't think they could afford all the food they should have. Uh, it's different from like medically starving. Well, I guess we'll find out if people are going to start medically starving based on weird, weird policies that are simply rooted in grandstanding. Oh, well, yeah. what can I say? Sorry about your troubles, Maine. You should probably vote for someone who's not a flamboyant degenerate. <laughs> good luck. Yeah, good luck. All right, we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, Republican digital strategist Patrick Ruffini, Center for American Progress's senior vice president, Daniela Leger, and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Travis Waldron. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.